All right. Well, welcome to Sovereign Grace. Has everybody had a good week thus far? Yes. All right. It's, not, it's only halfway through the week. We still have a few more days to go before Sunday comes again. Amen. So we're on the downhill side of the week. Y'all excited uh, for Sunday again? Some of you? Amen. Well, all right. Well, God bless you. Well, on Wednesday nights here for the last, well, actually since January, beginning of January, now into February, uh, we've been looking at uh, this idea of the spiritual basics of the faith. Uh, sometimes it's good for us to go back to the foundations of what it is to be Christian, right? And it's good for us to go through the scriptures. I think we started in Colossians chapter 1. We, were stay, we stayed in Romans chapters 9 and 10 for uh, several weeks. And uh, last week we were in Ephesians. And then tonight I want us to look at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. As we're thinking about uh, what it means to be a Christian or to become a Christian. This is really more the focus. What does it mean to become a Christian? Because uh, to be a Christian means that at one point we were not. I'll let that sink in for a minute. To be Christian literally means at one time we were not. It's kind of like if you're born, there was a time before you were born when you were not. Right, And if, if being a Christian or becoming a Christian, converting from a non-Christian to a Christian, converting from a sinner to a redeemed soul, means that we are born into this, right? this regeneration of the heart, being made new, where one time, the old self was one thing, the new self is Christ, becoming a Christian. But before we mistakenly think that becoming a Christian means it is something that we decide or a process by which we must be convinced, which there's some of that convincing, right? I think all Christians at some point need some convincing, but it's more than just a, a, a decision. It's more than just uh, something that, well, I think I'll try it. Why, why is it that the Christian life is, is what it is. What, what is. what is the gospel? At the, at the center of being a Christian, at the center of becoming a Christian, is the message of the gospel. Gospel meaning good news. What is this good news? Tonight, I think we're going to be able to see what happens here. When we are becoming a Christian, the old sinful self is gone, and the new redeemed self emerges in Christ. We ask the question... If our old sinful self has disappeared, what about my sins? What happens to them? What, what, what happens to the sinful life? Why is that in the past, and what is the new? What is at the core of this? So Mark chapter 15 is where we'll be tonight, and I think it'll really help us see exactly the purpose of the gospel. I want to ask, I mean, if you're able to stand, would you, would you stand as we read these verses together uh, out of reverence? Because this is so rich. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and I want you as we read these, this text, I really want you to, to try to put your mind, put your imagination into this scenario. Try to imagine what is actually happening, happening here. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Dear God, this true story that is so much a part of your word is something that we must remember was a necessity. As horrible as these events were, as we read them, we can just imagine the pain and the torture. And so, God, I pray tonight that you'd help us understand why this was necessary. What is it about the gospel message, the good news, that we must hear such horrible things? And so Christ, in, in your name we pray tonight that you just help us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So that, here's the fundamental question. If, if becoming a Christian involves transformation from the old sinful person to a redeemed person who still sins but is yet forgiven and sin is just a bad taste in their mouth and really when we sin, it, it, it really disturbs us when we sin, right? That, that's really the state, it, that's really one evidence of someone who has been redeemed in Christ, even though they may mix, make mistakes and they will, th- there's a bad taste in their mouth when it happens. It really torments them that they have disappointed their Lord. Whereas the sinner before Christ, sin really just doesn't make much difference. Okay, yeah, it was bad, but we'll move on. Right? But the sinner, who, rede- who when, they, when they do fail, uh, the sin has somehow been taken away. And so we have to ask the question, in becoming a Christian, what about my sins? What happens? What about them? And I think we're going to see here, we see something pretty, pretty profound, don't we? Um, we see Jesus as a substitute in more ways than one. So let's take a look here at the scenario. Looking here in the first few verses, we see what's happening. Uh, it, Jesus has gone through an entire night of kangaroo courts, going from one council to the next and from one monarch to the next, and, 
He's by the morning after all uh, an entire night of trying to find fault in Jesus. It, in the morning, the chief priests they just decide, okay, we're just going to take him to Pilate. Now we know who Pilate was. He was uh, the governor, uh, the Roman governor uh, over the territory. He was there, um, and so he would have final say. So notice this: the religious folks who would normally say, we're going to take care of our own problems within our own religion, within our own synagogue, and within our own temple. Uh, Rome, stay out of our business. And they had the right to do that to a certain degree. Suddenly, these religious leaders say, we're going to let the government take care of our problem within our ranks because they couldn't deal with it themselves. <laughs> they, they, they couldn't find any fault. Every time they went through the process, within their own, they couldn't find any fault in Jesus. So they said, well, let's take him to Pilate. Let's take him to the Roman authorities. Maybe they'll do something about it. And so looking here in verse 2, we see a very interesting interaction between Jesus and this governor Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? It's interesting here, Pilate is asking this question for a reason. Why is that? It's because um, the Jewish religious leaders who could find no fault in Jesus on charges of blasphemy... That's really what, that's the only thing that the religious leaders had in their tool belt. They could only charge Jesus with blasphemy against the, against the law and against the temple. And of course, they couldn't find any satisfaction in that uh, through the entire 24 hours of trying to find um, charges that would stick. So they take him to Pilate. Pilate had no authority over the religious part. He had no authority to, to condemn someone for blasphemy. That was not his power. His only power would have been treason against the Roman state. So the Jewish people, their Jewish leaders, they bring him to Pilate, and Pilate has to ask the question to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is a twist or an addition to the charge of blasphemy. Right? Blasphemy would be attempting to be God, and treason would be the attempt to be the king. Both very similar. I think Jesus was guilty of both as far as it was true. He was God, and he was the king. That's the twist in this whole thing. This is the irony, isn't it? Jesus was guilty of everything they charged him with. <laughs> but, what does that I mean? But still, guilt, he, he was guilty of the charge, yet why should he be condemned for being the true king and the true God? That's the, that's the irony here, isn't it? And so Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? And what was Jesus' response in verse 2? You said so. Sounds like a teenager, doesn't it? Every time I read this, I have to stop and think, was Jesus playing like a teenage boy or a teenage girl to their parents? Well, you said so. Y'all ever done that to your parents? <laughs> Some of the teenagers are going, don't go there, Pastor. Don't go there, Pastor. I'm not trying to get you in trouble or nothing. We've all been there. I did that to my family. I did that to my mom. Right? This, this was Jesus' response. You have said so. Jesus doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. His response is putting it back on Pilate. That's what you said. And then look here in verse 3. And the chief priests... I'm sorry. Yeah, and, um, yeah, and verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And verse 4, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? So here Jesus is being charged by Pilate 
the chief priests are still there making accusation against him, and Jesus is just kind of silent. Because Pilate says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? How many of us, when we are condemned, or when we're being charged with something, if we're being challenged, hey, you're at fault. You didn't pick up your socks, or you didn't go and pay your bills, or you didn't, whatever, you didn't show up to work on time, or whatever it is that you've been blamed for, whether you're guilty or not, how many of us have been blamed for things that we're totally innocent of? That happens. But how many times do we get blamed for something that we really did? Probably more often. <laughs> right? And Jesus is... Now, you and me, if somebody brings charges against us, what are we going to do? We're going to speak up. Why? Why would you speak up if you're charged with doing something? You're blamed. Yeah, either I'm innocent... Or, yeah, I'm guilty, please forgive me. You know, it's one of the two, right? Uh, or, yeah, I did it, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've not done that. Well, I guess when I was a kid I did that, right? Yeah, I did that, what are you going to do about it? Um, so we'll respond one way or the other, won't we? But Jesus here just is silent. You ever had somebody do that to you? You ask them a question and they just won't respond to you and they just ignore you? Y'all ever done that? What does that do to you whenever you ask a question and they're just silent? Do y'all know somebody like that? They point at each other, don't they? Okay, why is it that we don't respond? Why is it that when when you talk to somebody and they won't talk back, what are they trying to do? Well, their words could condemn them further. Okay, their words could condemn them further. Mm hmm. And what? But ultimately, okay, it could be if I speak, I'm going to dig my grave deeper. Could be that. But what else is also at play here? Is this not an act of power? You ever talk to somebody who wouldn't talk back to you? You've just lost total control of the conversation because there is none. I've had that happen. I, I mean, I've talked to people and they just sit there in silence and actually ignore me like I'm not there. Literally look, kind of look, just, just look past me, not even acknowledge I said anything. I've had that happen a lot. And that just drives me nuts. Whenever that had happened, I just cannot fathom why they would, they would disrespect me and not at least respond in kind. Jesus here, I, why is he being silent? I don't know that he's being manipulative. I don't think that he's being malicious. I think Jesus is, is sinless. He is in power. I think part of this is a power thing. It's prophecy fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 7. Isaiah 53.7. Go ahead and turn to there. Isaiah 53.7. There we go. Isaiah 53.7. There we go. I want to begin in verse 4, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures and he is not, I mean, he understands his role. He is already condemned, therefore, why speak? A sheep has no response to the slaughter. Now, what we have to understand here is a sheep would be considered dumb and not maybe aware of what's going on. Jesus clearly knew what was going on. So he's standing there in silence before Pilate. So what, I mean, think about this, this interaction between Pilate and Jesus. What do we see here? It seems like Pilate is indecisive, doesn't he? He, He's letting the chief priests and the religious leaders just kind of conduct court. Pilate doesn't seem to be in charge here. No, Pilate has to ask the question, and it's like he has to he has to uh, pacify the chief priests. They're the ones who are making all the noise. So Pilate's trying to get Jesus to bring a defense. Don't you have a defense against these idiots? Really? Don't you have any defense? And Jesus makes no further answer. And Pilate was amazed in Mark fifteen verse five. Why is Pilate indecisive? Mm-hmm. He has to satisfy one side of the law here. Yep. And so, if Jesus doesn't give a defense that you know that exonerates him, mm-hmm. then he has to carry this out. And if Jesus gives the defense that is the truth, then it justifies what the others have said. Yeah. So he's he's desperate for something to keep him from doing what he's been charged to do. That's it. He wants something to deliver him from this. Yeah. He has to have reason to let Jesus go, but also get Pilate himself out of this no-win situation. He's got to have something. Okay. It's inter- and again, why is Jesus silent? A lot of it is fulfilling Scripture. That's the number one thing. But why is God prophesying this in Isaiah? Jesus doesn't need to speak and defend himself. There's no need to defend himself. There's no need to defend himself uh, against the charges because, number one, Jesus is innocent. Why defend himself? Number two, he also understands that he is innocent, yet he is also carrying the guilt that we deserve. If we are guilty of our sin... Is there any defense? Mm-mm. Ultimately, we could, we could cry out to God and make excuses for our sin. We could cry out to God for why we act the way we do. We could, we could divert blame. God, it's not my fault. It's them. They made me do it. Or Satan made me do it, right? That's, that's a common thing. You don't hear that much anymore. The devil made me do it. That was a popular thing in the 70s, I think. Who... Uh, 
I remember that as a kid all the time. Well, the devil made me do it. We don't hear that much anymore, but that was a common excuse. The devil made me do it. It's an excuse. It's, a, it's an attempt to divert the guilt away from our sin. So let's look here as well in Mark chapter 15. Let's look at what happens after this little interaction between Jesus and Pilate. Beginning in verse 6. Now at the feast, he, being Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? No, this was, he was trying to find an out. I could release to you your king. Verse 10. Here's why Pilate does this. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. See, Pilate wasn't dumb. He was very wise. He saw the truth. He saw what was going on. He saw that the only reason these chief priests brought Jesus was because of envy, jealousy. There was nothing that Jesus was guilty of other than uh, being the target of uh, selfish men's envy. That was it. So verse 11, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. So this section here of Mark chapter 15, verses 6 through 14 tells us a little bit more about what happens to our sin and the role that Jesus plays. Why do the people here call, well, why do they call for Jesus to be crucified? First of all, they're asking for Pilate to do what he has always promised to do. Release to us one of the prisoners that you have. Give one of your prisoners back. Now, who is it that Pilate offers? Barabbas. What do we know about Barabbas from this text? He was guilty. What was he guilty of? Murder? Insurrection? I mean, the Romans would have had a field day with Barabbas. They would have had more political points with Barabbas being crucified than Jesus. Right? And so Pilate, I think, wisely wanted to, uh, wanted to get rid of Barabbas, but he wanted to find some way to free Jesus. But it's interesting here that suddenly the people, they don't want Barabbas, their, uh, their leader of their rebellion, they wanted Jesus to be crucified. Now clearly the chief priests are kind of at stirring the pot here. They're playing the, they're playing the devil, really, stirring up the crowd. But in verse 9 of Mark 15, Pilate asks a very important question. He, he answered the crowd saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? How can we understand that one verse? I think Pilate here, he may not fully understand 
Christ, Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But we could look at verse 9 here and ask ourselves, do we really want the true Christ? If we are sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ and we ask for something like this, do we really, when we ask, do we really want the true Christ or do we want the substitute? Pilate here is asking them, do you want the king of the Jews? Do you really want the true savior? Do you really want your true leader? You may not recognize him as such, but Pilate says, I see him for who he is. I'm happy to give him back to you because you would benefit. Pilate's trying to do the right thing here because he saw the writing on the wall. He saw what was happening. But what is the crowd's response? They say, give us Barabbas, the guilty one. The Jewish crowd, they reject the true Messiah for a convenient leader, a convenient savior of Barabbas. You see the problem here? The crowds, they had an opportunity to receive the true Messiah that they always heard about. They had the opportunity to receive the true Savior, the one that they honestly, deep down in their heart, desired. Remember, we talked about this on Sunday. Whenever we have desires, whenever we have cravings, whenever we are passionate about something, it is often distorted by Satan and by our own sin because what we really want is the true gospel. What we really want is the true Lord. But we substitute the truth for something else. That's what these people did. That's what they, right? You see this? The crowds, they substituted the true Messiah that they really were craving for and calling for, for a substitute. Barabbas. Why did they do this? Because think about this. If, if we look in the previous chapters, I'm not going to read them all, but I just want to point out to you that the chapters leading up to Mark chapter 15 indicate a very interesting timeline it begins in Mark chapter 11 with Jesus and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The week or week or so leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a, prof, a fulfillment of prophecy. But if we remember in Mark chapter 11, and this is Palm Sunday that we celebrate now, what was that day like? Jesus comes into Jerusalem, how? Yeah, on a donkey. And what was the reaction of the crowds, even though he was on a donkey? Celebrated. Yeah, they celebrated. They saw it. He was fulfilling Scripture, even riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And they were celebrating the king of the Jews. They were celebrating Jesus as the triumphant king coming to the, the capital to take over the kingdom. That was just a week prior to this event in Mark chapter 15. In less than a week... They turned their hosannas and their praises into crucify him, we don't want him. You ever notice that powerful thing? So why, why do the people, after seeing Jesus' miracles, hearing his teachings, and they praised him with hosannas in Mark chapter 11, Jesus had risen in prominence and popularity to the point that everybody knew who he was and everybody knew what he had done, yet... When it came time to free him from Pilate, they turned on him. Now they demand Jesus to be crucified. How many of us, when we 
have been we've been taught and we've been told and we've actually been introduced to the true Jesus Christ. How many of us react the way that the crowds do? Even now as Christians, if you're now a Christian, are there times where the real Jesus shows up and grabs your attention and you remember his goodness and you remember his love for you and you remember his power and his majesty, yet in remembering that, we reject him? I'm guilty of that. I've been making the wrong choice because it's more convenient. You act like Peter who eventually denied Jesus, but then when he woke up to his sin, was mournful and begged for forgiveness. So why does Pilate here then submit to the crowd and give them Jesus, or give Barabbas to the crowd and crucify Jesus? Why does he give, them, why does he give up? Because look here in, verse, uh, in Mark chapter 5, Uh, beginning in verse 13. And they, the crowd, cried out again, Crucify him. Verse 14. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and had Jesus scourged. So why did Pilate give in to the crowd? Why did he give them Barabbas instead? He wanted to satisfy the demands of the people. How many of us just kind of give up and just satisfy the demands of sinful requests or sinful desires? We just want to satisfy it. It's, it's too much trouble. It's too much stress. I'm in too much pain and turmoil. It's too difficult to do the right thing. So I'm just going to give in and satisfy the demands of the flesh. We all do that? How many of us, when we are uh, confronted by people who want to challenge our faith and even challenge uh, Christianity in general, we don't stand firm for the gospel, we don't stand firm for the true Jesus Christ, we give in in order to satisfy the demands of the pressure that's coming against us? How many people who are struggling in their sin that God is dealing with in their spirit? We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us. No one comes to the Father lest He call them, remember? And someone who is living in their sin and they're tormented day in and day out, week after week, month after month, and they know that they that they're sinners and they know that repentance is needed and they know that forgiveness can only be granted through the blood of Jesus Christ and they're in torment. How many people had a testimony like that when they came to Christ? How many people have had testimonies like that now that you're a Christian and God says, hey, I want you to go do something for me and we say no. (laughs) And there's this tension going on. How many of us eventually do what Pilate does and he just gives in to satisfy the crowd How many of us have done that? So Pilate is doing all of this to wash his hands and be done with it. Now, let's think about this. Pilate gives freedom to one man, Barabbas, in exchange for Jesus who was condemned. Now we're getting to the meat of the gospel, aren't we? 
Pilate gives freedom to one man, the sinful Barabbas, gives freedom to him and condemns Jesus who is innocent. How does, just ponder that for a minute. The sinful man is set free and the sinless man dies. That right, how, does that even sound like the gospel to you? It's the core of the gospel. So even in the midst of this narrative of Jesus before Pilate, we see the gospel expressed even in the outcome. Jesus is condemned unjustly for nothing that he had done, yet the sinner, Barabbas, is released and freed. Now, we don't know that Barabbas received Christ as his Savior. or There's a lot of speculation in church lore and history that... Pos- I think there was a movie in the 60s when you had Bible movies that were popular. There was a movie about Barabbas where they... It was a fictional story where they thought maybe Barabbas did come to Christ later. Right. Y'all know the movie I'm talking about? He said he probably watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember... Wa- I-, I did remember watching it years and years and years ago on... You know, like Sunday afternoon when they always used to show those old Bible movies on TV? They don't do that anymore. But we, can, we cannot speculate that Barabbas ever did come to faith, but think about this. Think of the imagery that's happening here. The sinner finds freedom through the death of the innocent Jesus. That's the gospel. Jesus pays the debt that the sinner should have paid. Barabbas should have been crucified. Barabbas was the one who was condemned. He was condemnable. Jesus was not. And Jesus dies in his place. That's the deeper thing here. Jesus dies in the place of the sinful Barabbas who did not deserve freedom, did not deserve to live, yet Jesus died in his place. Jesus was the substitute. Not just of Barabbas, but clearly of all humanity, past, present, and future. Throughout all of time and eternity, Jesus died for all of us. He was the substitute. What does this look like deeper? Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, because Jesus himself speaks to this long before this moment as he's prophesying his end, as he's talking to his uh, disciples. He, con- he shares with them what is going to happen. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Jesus knew all this was coming. Verse 32, And he said this plainly. I want you to underline that in your Bible. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37, make it real clear about the gospel and what's happening with Jesus and his death for us. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? That's a deep question. If we are sinful, our soul is condemned, what can we give in return for that. That right there is at the heart of salvation through Jesus Christ. There is absolutely nothing we can give. There's absolutely nothing we can do. Jesus alone is the only satisfaction for the sin that we are in. Amen? Now, let's go back to Mark chapter 15, and see how this all plays out. Jesus is carried off into into the crucifixion, but before he gets there, there's a process, and we, we read about this every Easter. Mark chapter 15, beginning of verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Can you imagine that scene? I mean, in our day and age of, of film, I, I still don't think anyone has gotten quite so close as Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ movie that came out, uh, that was 15 years ago now, close to it. I don't know that our, any other film has done it quite so well, but still at the same time, as, as gruesome as that was, it wasn't nearly as factual and truthful as the real deal, I'm sure. What was Jesus' experience after willingly being led off to be crucified by letting the sinful Barabbas go? What did Jesus suffer? You would think that Jesus would be celebrated, at least pitied. But he didn't get any pity, did he? He got mockery. He got torture. To ponder that, that Jesus, who was totally innocent, who willingly substituted himself for sinful Barabbas and for all of us, put to go through that mental and physical brutality. Think about that. But think about the soldiers. Now, what, what kind of... Their beatings upon Jesus were bad enough, but what kind of mental and emotional effects were on Jesus during this too? He was still human, even though he was always God. 
It's hard. It's 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 difficult for us to remember that Jesus did suffer in this too. So how do the actions of the soldiers affect Jesus? I mean, think about it. They mocked Jesus. Did their mockery come from fear? Did their mockery come from anger? Did their mockery come from unbelief? Why why did they mock Jesus? They may have done this consciously or in, or subconsciously. I don't know either one. But it was he was a threat. He was a threat to the sinful status quo. And so he, he suffered through that. But clearly, too, Jesus, who was the sacrificial lamb, would have had to gone through the torture that a lamb being sacrificed would have had to go through. Now, you don't normally beat a lamb before you sacrifice it. That would not have been part of the Old Testament law. But still, there was torture, there was suffering, there was pain, there was agony. There was emotional stress, there was mental stress, there was physical trauma, there was all this going on. But these actions of the soldiers also, don't they also reflect the just punishment for our sin? If we are guilty, if we are sinful, what do we deserve? We deserve what Jesus got here. We deserve the physical torture, the mental anguish the emotional turmoil. We, we, we deserve all of that. Think about it. Is that not also what sin does? Does sin ultimately give us anguish and emotional stress and, and turmoil spiritually and even physically? Sin can bring all of that. That's what we deserve, and that's the result of our sin. And Jesus goes through the most extreme addition of that that we could ever imagine. Not only did he, not only in this moment of torture and beatings by the Roman soldiers, but you have to imagine what was going on spiritually. Jesus was taking on this beating and this torture for all of humanity, past, present, and future, and for all eternity. Think, just imagine the weight of that. Magnify what he's going through billions upon billions fold. That's what was going on here, right? So what about our sins? When we talk about spiritual basics of becoming a Christian, yes, I may ask for forgiveness of my sins. I may actually repent and turn from my sins and turn to Jesus, and he does take care of my sins, but what happens to them? This is what happens to our sins. Jesus dealt with them this way so that we would not have to. That's the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Now, let's close with this, and and I want us to transition into a time of prayer. But think about this, how you apply it. Why did Jesus go through the suffering of the trial and torture when he could have easily just used his divine power, snapped his fingers, and stopped it all? Could have done that. He was mocked for that, wasn't he? You claim to be the Messiah. You proclaim to be the King of the Jews. Why don't you come down off that cross and finish this all? <laughs> Just deal with it. He, he was mocked that way. Satan did the same thing. Yeah, Satan Bye. How does this make you... Think about it. If Jesus could have stopped it, but he doesn't, and he endures it, how does this make you feel? Just ponder how, do you, how, do you, how does that, just hearing that, make you feel? If Jesus could have stopped it, but he didn't, how does that affect you? Then what does it want to make you do? 
How, I mean, how do you want to react to that? Number one, how do you feel about it? Number two, how do you want to respond to it? That's important. And then lastly, have your thoughts or actions ever been the same as these soldiers by mocking the name of Christ? Have your own thoughts done the same? And if that is an honest response in you, how do you react to that? I'm just going to let all that kind of settle. (laughs) I don't want it to be too heavy on you, but it is truth. It is the gospel, isn't it?